Well, hey, take that Bible. Let's drive us home here in our conference. I still think we got a full day tomorrow, though. And as John said, we want to welcome you to the church. If you're just visiting this week, we're so, we hope you can stay. And, uh, but look back to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. I want to take you to just a few verses and finish the argument, okay, that we begin this morning so that you might have a grasp of the word of God here in the flow of this book. And there's just two verses there that just stick out to me. And if I could just put them in your hearts and put them in your mind so that we might understand something of the character of God, then we'd be winning here tonight. The scriptures are there. Let me read three of them. It's right at the close of where we were in 116. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And then here they are. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. What a great text. I gotta tell you, as a young teenager, I never understood that verse. In fact, even before I exposited from James, I never saw the flow of 17 and 18. And until I exposited, I would say that most people butchered verse 19. Look at verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And so I want to come back to our argument um, that we begin this morning and then finish it just in our closing time here, okay? We begin by looking this morning at the source of our temptation. The source of our temptation. And remember, he opened with the rejection that he stated in verse 13. Let no one say when he's being tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. He opens with that rejection. Let no man ever, ever make such a claim. Then he gave the reason there in verse 13. Here's why. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. I mean, it's just logic at that point that if Almighty God cannot be tempted by evil, then verse 13 would say, then how could he therefore at that point, if he's not temptable, tempt anyone? And so he began there with the reason. And then thirdly, we looked at the reality is where we left off. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And so he clarifies the reality. Remember, he's dealing with the source of our temptation. And so he wants to say here, listen, the one who's to blame for sin, the one who's to blame for temptation is not God. It is very clearly, verse 14 there, our own lust. Now you remember we said in the context there, there were some who were struggling, I, I believe, with God. I, I think when James says there in verse 13, let no one say 
uh, and literally let no one say to himself. I think James, as a pastor, is very intertwined in this flock. That's why he keeps saying, my beloved brethren. So I believe as he communicates, he's not just raising rhetorical questions that he's kind of writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. I believe he's stating questions there of conversations that he's hearing about. Like in chapter four, when he says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such city, we'll engage in such and such in business. He says, you don't even know what your life will be like tomorrow. I think James is listening to their conversation. I think there's businessmen in that church who are talking about this city, this date, this time, this prophet, and, and we're going to make a prophet. He says, you don't even know what your days get. So when he writes this, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I believe he's listening in on their conversations or conversing with them himself. And so he just wants to clarify, it's our own lust. And we talked about that. We talked about lust desire. We talked about lust shameful deception. We talked about lust disobedience. And then we left off with lust separation and death. It brings forth death. James wants to be very clear. Now, after you walk through that, do you understand verse 16 right now? Look at it again now. He says there, the power of the word of God, do not be, what? Deceived, my beloved brethren. Now you'd ask the question, don't be deceived about what? Well, it's very clear. Don't be deceived about the character of God. God may send the trial. God sovereignly traces up the trial. God will bring trials into your life and into my life to strengthen us so that we'd come forth like gold. But James is almost arguing as a lawyer here to clear any erroneous views of God's character. So James says there, do you see it now? Don't be deceived. Do not ever, ever blame your sin on God. Your sin is a result of your own, what? Lust. You're tempted, you're carried away with a desire towards evil. But James just is trying to just say, listen, stop blaming God. You need to make sure that you recognize your own sin. Now listen, I don't have time to unpack this, but I mentioned this morning, it's interesting that the Greek word for trial is parosmos. The Greek word for temptation is, is a form of that word. And so temptation comes to us in the verb form uh, trials comes to us in the noun form, but the root is the same word. And I really believe there were people in this context who really thought, okay, God tested Abraham. That's what it says. Did you ever think about it this way? He's testing you. He may be testing some of you right now. God, God tested Abraham with his son Isaac to see what was in his what? Heart. It says in Deuteronomy 8 that God tested Israel. God's in the business of testing us. He's in the business of trying us, if you will, 
always with a purpose, always with a motive that we would grow, always with a motive that you would grow towards Christ's likeness. But listen, when that trial turns into a temptation, you could never blame God for your sin. So he literally says there, stop being deceived. Temptation does not come from God. It does not come from the environment. It does not come from poverty. It does not come from upbringing. It does not come from a boss, from a father. It comes from our own lust. Then he says this, look down, 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. So I take you back to that second vital feature. The first of it was the source of temptation. He wants us to understand that. I think we got that. Secondly, the substance of God's character. And I want you to make sure that you see the connection with what's come before. And you would even ask here in verse 17, why is 17 and 18 there? Here's why. James is correcting any erroneous views of God's character in the midst of trials. And what he does here in this second point is provide two illustrations of God's character. Okay, two illustrations. One, first, is his unchanging character. His unchanging character. Look at the text again in verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift. Stop there just for a second. He, he, it's interesting. He uses two different words that express the nature of God's giving. He uses that first phrase there, every good thing given. It's the idea of, of, of an action. It denotes an action. Literally, it is the act of giving. Then he says, look at, again at verse 17. He says, every good thing given, that's the first gift, and every perfect gift, every act of giving is the thought. And here this second one calls attention to the motive and the purposes of the giver. Now look at it again. It says there that every good thing given and every per perfect gift is from above. And he's spelling out the nature of God's goodness. Now he mentions that term in verse 17, every good thing given. And I think he does so in contrast as opposed, you see it now, anything that is sinful, anything that is evil, anything that is unholy, anything that doesn't speak of God's character in his holiness. So whereas temptation is a sinful desire in disobedience to God, God then in his character is good. God in his nature has never created anything evil or anything sinful. God, as we know from the scripture, is perfect and everything he does is perfect and here would be the input here. Don't ever be deceived, ever, ever, that God tempts anyone to sin. He is only the giver of good and perfect gifts. That's the sequence. 
Now these gifts that he gives, look in the text in verse 17. Come down, watch this phrase, from the Father of lights with whom, it says in my translation, there is no variation or shifting shadow. So watch this. What James is saying is that these gifts that God gives come down from the Father. And the thought here in the text is that these gifts unceasingly flow down from above. It's the ideal of, in the language, a present participle. They're showering down. They keep coming down. And they come down, look at the text again in verse 17, from the Father of lights. And we understand that. It refers to God as the creator. And we've been singing about that this weekend. And the lights, obviously, he's the father of lights, refer to the the brilliant sun. It refers to the reflective moon. It refers to the twinkling stars. Listen, God is the father of all the lights. And because he is the father of lights, I think metaphorically speaking, there can be no darkness that would ever, ever, ever originate with God. 1 John 1, 5 says that God is light and in him there is no, what? Darkness at all. There's absolutely no darkness in God. Now watch this. That with God, unlike the creation of lights, unlike him, look at 17. There is no variation or shifting shadow, okay? It means, and we understand this, as the sun and the moon and the stars move in our atmosphere There are shadows, obviously, that are cast as the earth rotates. But watch this, not so with God. There is in his character no variation. You say, what does that mean? It means that there's no change. It says that with God, there is no shifting shadow, if you will, caused by the change. So watch this. If you can see his argument, the lights, as we know them, the sun, the stars, and the moon, have variations. We call those seasons. We call those eclipses. We call those shadows, etc. But listen, with God's nature and with God's character, he is absolutely, utterly unchanging. In other words, God is never a chameleon in trials. God, listen, would never, ever, ever incite you to evil. That's the point. See what James is doing. He's saying that some to whom he writes, they've got it all wrong. They're blaming God. And James is saying, listen, there's nothing in his character. There's no shifting shadow. There's no variation with him. He's never a chameleon in trials. He's never gonna incite you to evil. And I really believe that this needs to be said. Listen, God only and always gives good gifts to his children. And the one who is the father of lights never changes. Listen, he is eternal. He is immutable. He is unchanging. And the God who orders the changes in the seasons in his creation does not ever change himself. 
Now listen, as a pastor, I'm telling you, I have known so many people who think God threw the deck out me and I picked the joker. God handed me a wrong trial, a wrong trial. He gave me a spouse that is detached emotionally, a spouse that might even be detached physically. He gave me a job that never panned out. He gave me children who disobey. He gave me a womb that can't conceive. He gave me a debt that will never go away. He gave me a childhood memory that can't be erased. And then the question would be, is he still good? And what James is saying, he is good. God cannot be anything but good. And that all he does is good. And so James here is correcting any wrong views about God to those who are doubting his goodness and have become so disillusioned to the point of losing all hope in trials. Now listen. You walk back in your own life. And I'm telling you, on the authority of the word of God, he would never tempt you to sin. He may send a trial to build your faith, but he would never send you a temptation to submarine your faith. If your trial turns into a temptation, then he's never the one to blame. I mean, go back to what Rick was saying. What God meant evil, or what what Satan meant evil for Job, right? God meant good. That even though God allowed the trial in Job's life, Satan was out to destroy him. That's why it's hard to know. Is it a trial? Is it a temptation? Is it really something I need to overcome? Or is it some evil that I need to withstand? Sometimes only the context will tell that. But what what James says here in his creation is his unchanging character. He'd never send you something that you couldn't handle. He'd never give you something that wouldn't grow you. He'd never send you something that wouldn't build you. And and what it will do is it, it will humble us under the almighty point of God that he may dial up a trial for you, but he only does it for your good that you would share his glory. He only does it that you would be and I would be more like Jesus Christ. So first illustration is his unchanging character. Secondly, look there, is his special creation. Have you ever seen this before? Thrilling. So what does this mean? Look at it in verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So here's his special creation. You say, and this is kind of funny. I mean, for me, okay. What does this have to do with the context of our sin? This, have you ever read that? What's that there for? What's he talking about? In the exercises, well, he brought us forth by, by, by the word of truth. He's onto something new. Listen, no, he's not. Sometimes you just follow through with these so-called scholars and they stop reading the passage. Listen, James never left the issue that we're addressing here. He's still in the same paragraph. In fact, look down again at verse 18. He's still on the same thought. He says in verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. That ideal of to bring us forth 
is the ideal of to be born again. So listen, he's never left his metaphor of giving birth. Remember negatively, look back in verse 15, when he talks about conception there, he says, then when lust has what? Conceived, verse 15, it gives birth to sin. Listen, he's still using the same metaphor. He repeats the metaphor regarding God and his character regarding giving birth. And the contrast is this. Have you ever seen this? Sin and lust bring forth death. But God, in the exercise of his will, who brought us forth is the ideal of the new birth that God Almighty caused you and made you to be born again. The ideal is he begets you. He breathed life into you. He brought you forth. You became a believer. That's the doctrine of regeneration. You say, Scott, put it together. Okay, I will. Listen, far, far, far from God tempting you to evil, Listen, his will, the exercise of his sovereign will, is the cause of the new birth in your life. As I mentioned, it's the doctrine of regeneration. You say, what what is that? Regeneration, simply, by definition, being born again, is an act of God by which the new life is implanted into the soul of man. He made you new. We just sang about that. We just sang about the new life. He breathes it into you. He takes dead sinners and gives them life. He takes people who are dead in their trespasses and sins and gives them life in Christ. He takes people who are under the domain of Satan and transfers them into the kingdom of a son. He takes people who were in the darkness and puts them into the light. And you say, how does he do that? Well, look at it again. In the exercise, God's sovereign, in the exercise of his will, He brought us forth. We were by nature and by choice dead in our trespasses and sins. Listen, if you're saved and redeemed here this afternoon, your salvation is a work of almighty God on a dead soul. He breathed life into you. I don't know, and obviously, Brian, you've been teaching that here in this church, but I remember as a little kid, I I I was eight years old, and I'm on my little street in Canoga Park in, in, in Southern California in the San Fernando Valley in Canoga Park. And I'm eight and I see this, this um, paramedic truck just scream down our street. It's like, whoa, lights blaring, you know, bells going off. Then the fire truck comes. And uh, I thought, whoa. I mean, you're a little guy, eight years old. I, I walked out my front door and two houses down, the paramedic truck pulled in, the fire truck pulled in, the paramedics, I'm just watching this, paramedics go in. So there's a lot of neighbors standing outside, but not me, I'm eight. You don't, you don't kind of know the difference. I'm like, why is everybody standing out? I just went right in the door. I just went right in the door. And there was our, our friend, our neighbors, they were elderly. I think his name was Paul. And there were the paramedics over him. The guy's blue. He's gone. There's no life in him. And they got those little, I call them the ringers, you know, the, the paddles. And they're just, you know, just shocking the guy. And there's his wife beating on him. Just, 
Paul, come back, come back. He must have had a heart attack and he died right there. And you know what? I just never forget. I saw the line on the screen. Boo, flat line. He's gone. Listen, before you came to Christ, you didn't have a beep on the line. Before you came to Christ, you're flatline. You're dead in your trespasses and sin. And God Almighty, according to his sovereignty, by the exercise of his will, he breathes spiritual life into you. So, well, Scott, what's the point? Well, listen, listen. Here's the point. God doesn't ever, under any circumstances, ever lead people into sin. Rather, he is the very one who began spiritual life in you. He saved you, he redeemed you, and he brought you forth. You say, well, how did he do that? Well, it's right there in the scripture. Look at it. Here's how he did it. I love this text. This is enough. He said, in the exercise of his will, verse 18, he brought us forth by the, what? By the word of truth. I mean, you read it, I'm reading it, by the word of truth. You say, what does that mean? It just simply but profoundly means that the word of God is the instrument by which God saves dead sinners. In other words, God's chosen to use as a channel this wonderful book to bring you forth in the exercise of his will. And again, I'm still thinking, but as many as received him, John 1, 12, to them, you know that one. He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. You remember this one? Who were not born, uh, not, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of who? God. He brings you forth and he does it by the agency and the instrument of the word of God. Listen, I would just tell you, I'm smiling here, right, Rick and Brian, what else are you going to do? You got another gimmick to save dead sinners? You got something else that you're going to bring out of your bag of tricks that you think in your own human technique you have more power than this book? I don't think so. Are you kidding me? See, what, God, what James says here is, listen, in the exercise of his sovereign will, he didn't make you sin. No, in the exercise of his sovereign will, he breathed life into you, and he did it, verse 18, by the word of truth. This is why we teach and preach the word of God. God's word saves people. He breathes new life into them through the agency of his word. And you know this. Look, look back, just one scripture or in Hebrew. Hebrews, would you look there in Hebrews, excuse me, not in Hebrews, but in 1 Peter, just look forward, and you've seen this before, you've been well taught, but I just pointed out, I love that statement in James 1.18, here's an illustration where it says, it's perfect, is it not, in 1 Peter 1.23, for you, here's the same thought, it's the same Greek word, it doesn't look like it, but it is. For you have been born again, there it is, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring, what? Word of God. God's pleased to save people. God, listen, sovereignly takes his word and sovereignly saves his elect as they respond to the word of God. 
So you say, what's the point? Here it is. In strong, utter, absolute contrast to the self-deception of sin is the word of truth implanted in your soul to save your life. You say, well, what did God have in mind? Oh, listen, he had something in mind. He, He had something definite in mind. He didn't just save you to get you out of hell, though we rejoice in that. He had something very purposeful in mind. So what is that? Well, it's right there in the book. Look down again. You just understand why I'm pointing you down. When you're preaching the word of God, it's not really about us. It's get to the scripture, okay? I always tell young preachers when we train them, point them back to the book. You say, well, what's the purpose? It's right there. Look at it in verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Watch this. Purpose clause, comma, so that we, what? Would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, let's explain it just for a second. What do you mean the first fruits among his creatures? Well, you remember if you're reading through the Bible like these men are and like I am, you know what I do? This is just a little side footnote. I read through the two-year Bible. Say, why not one year? Well, you ever get that point if you like miss four days? Then you join the speed reading course. I hate that. And then I'm speed reading on the scripture. So I have found this thing on the Gospel Coalition website. It's two years through the Bible and every year you read Psalms twice and Proverbs twice. I love it. And I, and I forgot it in my other Bible this week and I'm, I'm bummed because I, I, I like to, to, to read it. But in the Old Testament, this little phrase is captured, the kind of first fruits among his creatures. It referred back to the Levitical system. Do you remember when the Jews would set aside uh, what they called the first portion of the harvest And they would set aside the first portion of the harvest and they said that it belonged to the Lord, Leviticus 10 and 11. In fact, there it says that it was holy to the Lord. And so what James, listen, is now saying is that we, we, okay, if you're in Christ, are the first fruits among his creatures. In other words, we are in the first stage of an ultimate renovation that is taking place in our life, moving us from justification to sanctification all the way to glorification. In fact, it says this in Romans 8.23, and not only this, but we also ourselves, it says, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our redemption as sons, the redemption of our body. And so here, let me, let me bring it back, okay? This is where words need to be placed together, A equals B, C. Listen, God, concise statement, okay, is not only the bestower of every good and perfect gift, okay? He is the very one who brought about your new birth through the instrument of the word of God that one day we might be completely transformed. That one day we would be made holy. That's why he saved you, young person. 
He didn't save you to live for yourself. He didn't save you to live for your own glory. He didn't save you so you could make a name for yourself. He saved you and redeemed you that one day he brought you forth and then one day he's in the ultimate renovation project and he will utterly transform you when you stand in glory. So far from God ever leading somebody into sin, James says, are you kidding me? He is the giver of every good and perfect gift coming down and showering down from the Father above in whom his own character is no variation, no shifting shadow. No, listen, he's the one who in the exercise of his will breathed life into you. You know, he did that in my life. Still remember it. I can tell you where I was standing. This doesn't mean everybody knows that or everybody can know that. But for me, it was distinct. 14 years old draining three-point shots in my backyard. That's what I did. I would not go to bed until I made 10 jumpers in a row from 17 feet. The neighbors would yell at me, go to bed, you know, and the, I'm not, I'm, I was like, a, I was just all intense, pumped up, and I just had to make these. And one night out when I'm shooting baskets, it was the Holy Spirit. Here's how, what he did in my life. A scripture came to my heart. It's the word, right? You said, now I would say a scripture came to my heart. Who brought the scripture to my heart? God. See, I, I was out there thinking, I, I was, I'm okay. And he brings this scripture to my heart. For whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point, he's become what? Guilty of all. And I'm telling you, one scripture, that's the instrument, I'm undone. It was as though an arrow came out of heaven, pierced my soul, and I thought, I am a dirty, filthy sinner. That at 14 years of age, no matter how nice I thought I was, I recognized at that moment, at that time, in that place where I was standing for the first time in my life that I was a sinner on my way to hell. And you say, well, what, were you in a church? Yeah, I'm listening to the Big Mac attack, John MacArthur for six years of my life, and I'm like a dead salmon going downstream, unredeemed, sitting, listening to him, and then that scripture pops into my mind. I, I was undone. Went in, didn't really have to, but I went, I, I, well, I shouldn't say that. I went into my house, told my mom, got down on my knees, and I trusted Jesus Christ for the first time in my life. Got up, the burden was relieved. He'd forgiven me all. I confessed him as Lord and Savior. But I look back and I think, he took a dead sinner, 14 years of age, and breathed life into me. And listen, he made me for a purpose that I would be in an ultimate renovation project, the first fruits among his creatures. Listen, he wants to present you holy. So here's what Paul told Timothy, flee youthful what? Lust. Stop messing around. I mean, I just, don't get caught up in that stuff. He said, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And he said, remember that one in Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its what? Lust. So listen, how do you advance? You advance by understanding temptation. You advance by understanding the character of God. Now, I'm almost done, but I gotta show you one more thing. I think it's one of the most abused verses in the whole Bible. I really do. 
It's verse 19. Have you ever wondered why it's there? Just, I'm almost done. This you know, verse 19. Well, what do you know, my beloved brethren? But let everyone be quick to hear. You know it. Slow to speak and slow to what? Anger. I said, what does that have to do with the context? Everything. And I've heard people use, well, this is a verse for biblical counseling. No, it's not. <laughs> it's a verse where you bring families together and here's the ground rules. You, and I, I understand maybe my application. You gotta be quick to hear. You gotta be slow to speak. You gotta be slow to anger. No, 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 no. So what does it mean? It's right in the context. Here's what it means. You get in the face of a trial. You get in the face of a temptation and you begin to blame God Let no one say when he, and you begin to blame it on God. Basically what James is saying is shut your mouth. That's what he's saying. He's saying what you ought to do when you come in the midst of a trial and a temptation, don't talk, don't blame God. Verse 19, you ought to be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. You say quick to hear what? Quick to hear this book. Put yourself in submission underneath it. And rather than blame God, don't you think that's what the next verse means? When he says, for the anger, listen, people were mad at God. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And then he says, therefore, putting aside, listen, if you want to advance, he said, well, let me give you one practical thing. You want to advance? Verse 21, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains in wickedness in humility, receive the what? The word. He's never left his argument. Receive the word implanted. Now, you'd have to trust me on this one, which is able to what? Save your soul. You say, is he talking to a believer there? No. What do you mean receive the word which is able to save your soul? Get saved. No, you don't need to get saved. You say, why? You were already saved in verse 18, right? He already brought you forth by the word of truth. What's this talking about? Here's the practical application for overcoming sin and temptation. You put aside filthiness. No, we don't have time. You can't advance if you don't put it aside. I could preach advance, Brian can preach advance, uh, Rick can preach advance, and if you walk out of here and you don't put aside your own filthiness, you'll never advance. So how do I advance? Well, you put it aside, take it off, if you will, and all that remains of wickedness and in humility, get underneath God, receive that word implanted, which is able, and here's how I take it, to deliver your soul. You say, what do you mean deliver your soul? Deliver your soul from temptation is the thought. Listen, if you want to overcome sin and temptation, then you've heard the men say, put your life underneath the word of God and obey it. And God will give you great victory as you walk forward. And then he's still on the same subject. Prove yourself, verse 22, to be doers of the word and not merely a hearer. So listen, If I could just have one closing argument as the band comes up in just a moment. Listen, hide this word in your heart that you might not, what? Sin. Listen, your desire, sinful desire, mine, has to be, Rick, I wanna just rub this on me. (laughs) 
Um, you you got to just hide that word in your heart and love it so that you're able to combat your sinful desire with the scripture and of course in all of this. Jesus is the greatest example, is he not? With every temptation, he responded and said, it is what? Written. He's our hero. He's our model. He overcame and through his power and through his strength, so can you. Would you bow your head with me? I believe the band's gonna come up and maybe just as we close our time out here, you've heard a lot of truth in the last day and a half. Praise the Lord. But maybe as you walk away today, we used to say in my doctorate classes, some of the professors would say, what's a takeaway today? And maybe I'd ask you, what's a takeaway today for you? What do you need to do? What do you need to act upon? Maybe you need to get some accountability. Maybe you need to talk to someone openly. Maybe you just need to rejoice in Christ. That wherever we stumble, he has never stumbled. That wherever we have fallen short, he has never fallen short. I love that song that we sang over the weekend a thousand times I failed. That resonates with my heart. If it wasn't for our precious Lord, we could never stand before God. In fact, the only reason we will stand before him is not only did he forgive our sin and justification, but he imputed to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Give him thanks for that. But listen, at the same time we rejoice in that, you need to flee youthful lust. You need to make no provision for the flesh and you need to keep your eyes fixed and focused. What's a takeaway for you today? Maybe young man in this room, how would it be that the Lord would want you to respond? Young woman, how would he want you to respond? Some of you just need to make a commitment to the word of God to be in it, to live by it. Father, we love you and we're only here by the grace of God. So Lord, would you just, we're just begging you to continue that we would be the first fruits among your creatures and certainly that was spoken to those believers who first heard that by way of application to us but we're in an ultimate renovation project And we won't ever arrive until we get to glory. But Lord, until we get to glory, would we fight sin with all of our might? Would you help us advance in our understanding of you? Lord, that verse strikes me in James. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Lord, we put anything at your feet even now. We bring it to the cross. We may think we're hiding. We may think there's some things that other people don't know, but Lord, you're the heart searcher. We don't even have to go through an x-ray machine at the airport. You already see inside. You see everything under our thoughts. You even know when there's a word on our tongue even before we speak it, even from afar. So Lord, we don't want to hide anything. I want to bring it to your feet. Lord, would you keep us ever advancing to be more like your dear son. Lord, that's what we want to be. He, oh, he was deity, but Lord, he's humanity. And he 
defeated the evil one and sin itself, though he had no sin nature in that sense, but he overcame every temptation. Lord, may we look to Christ and ever give you all the glory and all the praise and all the honor. And Lord, finally one day, we just can't wait till we get to heaven. Lord, I was just thinking, singing tonight, one day we won't have to battle this stuff anymore. And Lord, it makes us in our heart long for heaven. Lord, one day we'll be with you. There'll be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more night, no more sin. But Lord, until that time, we're in a battle, we're in a fight. Lord, help us cling to you, keep our eyes on the cross, and look forward to that day where we'll hear from you, well done, my good and faithful son, servants. Enter into the joy of your master. Lord, ever show us this, we pray in Christ's name and all God's children said, amen.